Surprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. Just representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. Today's show is absolutely electric. We got Hibba Hefsi here on the podcast. This woman is a marvel, a marvel, okay? She's a doctor, a marathoner, an ultra runner, mom, kicking butt, and she wasn't always a runner. She came to it a little bit later in life and is just doing remarkable things. Not only that, she is a wellspring of energy and positivity and someone who I wish I could talk to every single day of my life because it would make my life so much better. Why not necessarily improve her life? <laughs> That's pretty sure. But I don't think I can, I don't think all the adjectives I use to describe her, I can't use to describe me, but she is absolutely remarkable. I'm so glad that she's on the show today. Her coach, Sydney DeVore from McCurdy Trained, actually recommended her. She said, you got to get Hibba on the show. She is unbelievable. And I couldn't agree more. Sydney, thank you for helping that, helping us out, getting another great guest here on the podcast. Hibba is an extraordinary, extraordinary person. And if you are looking for a coach, Head over to McCurdyTrained.com. We have dozens of high-level coaches, over a 1,000 athletes now work with McCurdy Trained, and I happen to be a coach McCurdy Trained. So if you want to talk to James and Heather McCurdy, get mashed up with a coach, that would be absolutely fantastic. Let's get into the podcast with Hibba Hefsi. Oh, great. We are here with Hibba Hefsi. Hibba, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Oh, this is great. This is, uh, I was so excited with you when your coach, Cindy DeVore, who was recently on the show with one of her athletes, yeah. Ari Hendricks, um, I was talking to her. I'm like, hey, if you ever have someone that you think would be a great fit for the show, like, please let me know. Like, I'm always looking for great guests. And she's like, say the word. I got a great one. I got a great one. And like <laughs> 10 minutes later, she's like, we're like doing the three person DM uh, over on Instagram. <laughs> so I am so excited to have you on. Um, before, I guess, again, like I say oftentimes in the show, I don't like going purely chronologically, but I think for certain people, there that it does make a lot of sense. And I think this is exactly why your your feature story in women's running um by Christine Yu kind of started chronologically as well. I'd love to start where she started back in 2012. Can you can you kind of set the stage for where you were in your life um, in terms of like what was going on, where you were geographically? And then we'll kind of talk about like what, what happened at that point that set you on the stage from a running perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am a first generation Egyptian American. I was raised in a little town in Ohio and there was just a really big um, focus on education and kind of career path growing up. So I was never an athletic kid per se. I mean, I played soccer and, you know, things like that, but never anything I would consider athletic. Um, I was really just focused on education. Um, fast forward, I had a kind of uh, fast track to medicine and I graduated from medical school and I was 22. Um, and For people who don't know, can you <laughs> saying you're on a fast track does not simply mean like, Hey, I knew what I wanted to do in life. So it worked out for me. There, there are, there are, ste <laughs> there are steps here that either were skipped or, or, or hurdled over. Um, so put your path in comparison to what like would be a more traditional path for most people. A more traditional path is you graduate from high school, you're 18, you get a four-year bachelor's degree, you're 22, you go to med school, 26, you graduate, and then you start your residency. Um, so I shaved off a couple of years. I graduated from high school and I was 16. Um, and then I got my bachelor's degree in two years. So I started med school at 18. So did was that like a as a boatload of AP credits fed into I did that? Have, or how I, did, I did have some AP credit, but I was in a six year medical program. So what that is is they guarantee you a spot in medical school as long as you take and pass the MCAT and get your bachelor's degree in two years. And then you have a counselor who kind of advises you on how to do that. But you're basically going to school over the summer and taking a little bit more of a course load than you would normally take. So I have, a, you know, a bachelor's degree in natural sciences. Um, 
Yeah. And then I, I matriculated to, to med school and, you know, it's funny to think about now because I started my residency at 22. Like I was writing prescriptions and managing medications. And like, I, I look at 22 year olds now and I'm like, (laughs) I like to think of myself as a more mature 22. (laughs) When I look at a 22 year old now, I'm usually like, that's a 19 year old. I'm like, no, (laughs) you you looked even younger when you were 22. I would say you, I mean, me, 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 I, when I was 22, I looked very young. So I can only imagine you're looking at like some of these 22 year olds who are like, I want to enter medical school. And you're like, I was writing prescriptions at your age. <laughs> um, I, I got married in my last year of medical school. I was 21. Um, I, I had my first child and I was 25 in my last year of residency. I'm a neurologist. Um, and then I had two kids very shortly thereafter. So my oldest was three when my third was born. And, um, by this point I had finished a fellowship in vascular neurology and I was working as an attending vascular neurologist. And after she was born, I just like, I had gained weight and I felt like the most hypocritical doctor ever. I talked to my patients about the importance of exercise and diet and like making time for yourself because as a stroke doctor, like risk factors are something we talk about all the time. And I was like, I'm short of breath climbing the stairs. <laughs> it was like, I just needed a whole lifestyle like overturn. And so every journey begins with a single step. So I, I started out by running like 10 minutes during my lunch break because it was something I could do. My kids were really little. I had a full-time job. Like I just didn't feel like I had the time to do anything more than that. Can we and dive so, into that time part? Because this is a yeah. huge hurdle for a lot of people. And it can be one of those things for some folks. And again, this this is a wide range. I don't want to paint it to be like a binary choice. But there are other people, and I've certainly fallen into this. So I'll just speak for myself. There are times where I have used time as an excuse when it really wasn't. It was more like I was using it as a rationalization. And there's been other times where like it's been a flat out good reason why I couldn't do something. Other times where I'm like, ah, I don't know. I don't have. Yeah. And I rationalize my way through it. And I look back with regret in those cases. So so to, to walk me through like what what like a typical semi-typical day was when you started picking up running in terms of your daily schedule. Well, when I started picking up running, I had a newborn, a one and a half year old and a three year old. So I was Oh, and I took like eight to 10 nights of call a month. And so I was chronically sleep deprived. (laughs) I was eating terribly. And um, I just, I just, just like, I couldn't do it in the morning. And I couldn't do it when I had my kids with me because it's so unexpected. Someone's going to throw up. Someone's going to need a diaper change. Who knows, you know? And so I figured my lunch break at work is my protected time. Sure. It would be convenient to sit and have lunch with my coworkers and chat about our lives, but what mattered more to me then? And I felt like I just really needed, I needed to get healthy. And so I just gave up my lunch break and I'd go change in the bathroom of Starbucks. <laughs> there was a trail right there. So I'd hop onto the trail. I do my, I couldn't even run a mile. I would like run walk. Like I, the first time I ran a mile without stopping, like it was like a hallelujah moment. Like I'm not a runner. <laughs> And then, and then I'd get back in my work clothes in the Starbucks bathroom, no shower, just like a quick, like wipe to freshen up and head back to work. You know, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. So that's how it started with just, you know, 10 minutes and then it became 15 and then I'd squeeze out, you know, a half hour, but, and then, and then I um, signed up for a 5K. The the woman who take, took care of my baby when I was at work had breast cancer. And so it was like one of those like race for the cure things in downtown Detroit. It was a huge event. It sounded like it was so much fun. And I was like, all right, well, let's see how it goes. And I showed up and I ran the whole thing. I think I finished in like an okay time for someone who's never run three consecutive miles before. <laughs> Um, so it was like from there, I just like caught the running bug. All right. Let's talk about when you first started, right? So you're, you're in the situation where you're super busy, you're squeezing in 10 minutes of exercise and a kind of a walk run situation. You're building up to 15. You're a doctor. I mean, you're aware of the benefits of, of, um, of exercise for a whole 
you know, for panoply of reasons. With that said, it'd be also easy to rationalize, be like, well, what's 10 minutes going to do, right? Like, is 10 minutes of this really worth me, like, going through the stress of, like, going to this, like, this public restroom in the middle of a Starbucks and then toweling off and all that? Well, I'm glad you bring that up because there's there's actually there's actually publications and data that show that just 10 minutes of cardiovascular exercise a day reduce your risk of cardiovascular mortality by 50%. That's a big it's a big effect for such a small lifestyle change. Thank you for saying that. I was actually, I was going to be, I was actually, I was going to say next was like, oh. I tell my athletes all the time, like <laughs> if you obviously on your, on your scheduled off days, embrace it. But if it's not, but if it's the day you're supposed to run, like just get in 10 minutes, it might feel like nothing, but it's not nothing. And then I stopped feeling like a hypocrite because I would commonly say to my patients, you can wake up 15 minutes early and just do a 10 minute like jog. And they were like, do you do that? And I'd be like, yes, as a matter of fact, we do. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about what it meant for you to get the running book. Like, What did that feel like? How did that change your goals or your, how you how you fit it into your day and that sort of thing? Well, it's just I feel like my my confidence shifted a lot when I I just when I got better, I felt I felt better. I was more energetic. Um, all of the weight that I needed to lose just like melted off. I was literally the healthiest I'd been in my life. And just by default, I feel like when you're living a more active lifestyle, your diet changes. So I didn't put myself on like any crazy calorie restriction or whatever, but I just gravitated towards healthier eating habits. Um, and I just like that shift in my lifestyle, I think, like just shifted my mindset and the things that were important to me changed, you know, um, I had been living just a more sedentary lifestyle. And I just started enjoying doing active things more. I liked being outside, I liked taking my kids outside. Um, and that just like my my whole lifestyle changed. Now, did you grow up in a household or just like a, a close-knit community where exercise was something, exercise or sport and just in general, was something that was um, encouraged or at, le- at least like maybe your parents were like kind of indifferent, like you do it or you don't, like we're not going to stop you from doing it? Yeah, that's exactly what it was. I mean, my my mom, bless her soul, my parents both worked full time and and like they did the best they could. And my mom took us to soccer, my brother and I, we we did soccer growing up. But once I got into high school, like just the importance of all of that dwindled away. And it was like, okay, this is where you have to really focus because the rest of your life depends on this. Um, and so, so was that, is that them talking? Or is that how you viewed it? Obviously, you were a precocious academic talent at that age. It was both. I think um, I... I knew that I did not want to spend my entire life in Toledo, Ohio. <laughs> and I was like, this is my ticket out. <laughs> my grades are going to get me out of this little town. <laughs> Got it. It's funny because like, I'm actually from a little town. So I'm like, Toledo, Ohio sounds like a pretty big place. Like they got their own university. <laughs> they got all sorts of things. Um, I'm sitting here from Barrington, Rhode Island, like all like 12,000 oh people. <laughs> We had like college and it like disbanded. It's just like this, like like, these buildings are just like crumbling. Well, it was even more stressful for me because my dad's a university professor and the University of Toledo is a pretty big university. And because he's tenured, I would have free tuition if I went there. And he was like, if you don't get a scholarship somewhere else, you're going to University of Toledo. (laughs) It was like, okay. Oh my God. That that's that's hysterical. All right, so 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 they were indifferent on the athletic part. Didn't didn't dissuade you, but they weren't like you're doing it. You're going to be active. It's just kind of how it go how it goes in this family. So when so you pick up the running bug, you're you know you're you're getting going. Did you start hitting? I guess let's talk about some of the obstacles once it became a part of your life and you had transitioned from like all right, I am non I'm a non runner to now I am a runner. Now I mean like skipped into the page like. You're doing all sorts of things from like intermittent endurance running perspective. But obviously someone doesn't get to that point, you know, super quick. So what were some of the hurdles that you had early on or even a couple of years in where you were embracing the sport, but all of a sudden you're picking up goals and then, you know, just the, the time constraints and the various things that can potentially pop up? 
There were so many hurdles. I think one, the first hurdle is like figuring out what do you even wear? Because like, just for like a regular gym workout, if you're doing aerobics, it really doesn't matter. But when you're out running, especially if it's hot, like as a woman who wears hijab and, you know, dresses, I dress modestly for my religion. um, It was super hard to figure out what to wear. And at the time I would, I would wear, um, swim cover-ups those like shirts that women wear over their swimsuits that go down to like that's because those are super light so I'd get those and I'd wear those with like athletic pants and like you know whatever cotton hijab that I didn't care about because I knew it was going to get sweaty and gross but I didn't really I didn't have friends who ran and I didn't there was nobody to like give me advice I just had to figure it out on my own so like I mean, fast forward a couple of years, I actually ran my first marathon head to toe in cotton. (laughs) (laughs) I hope it was a winter race. It was fall. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's when I learned really what chafing was. (laughs) Um, Oh, my God, that's tough. That's tough. With time, I have like I have I've found you know I found really comfortable in my opinion modest running clothes, and you can now get dry fit hijabs even from a million places. Like every company makes them now, it's super easy to find. Um, so the the clothing hurdle kind of it took years, but but I figured it out. Um, I think culturally, even till this day, like my parents get very nervous if I tell them that I'm running a marathon or, you know, we'll talk about some of the other crazy things that I've been doing, but they get, they get really nervous. They have have a true fear that I will die doing this thing. (laughs) They're very concerned. Like like from an overexertion standpoint or like from someone else? Um, I just like, they're like, was the human body really made to do these things? Like, this doesn't seem natural. It's not like a 30 minute run anymore. You know, and my, my, my dad, my dad grew up in Egypt, and he's, you know, he's in his 70s. And so, you know, for him, he's like, is this what like, an adult who has children in the career should even be doing? You know, like he kind of looks at it like he finds it like not mature. And then I'm divorced now. But when I was married, my ex-husband felt like this isn't like what this isn't what a mom this isn't the lifestyle of a mom. Um, And I used to laugh and say it almost felt like I had an affair with running because I would have to run secretly. (laughs) That was the only way that like I wouldn't get in trouble for it. (laughs) I'm trying to think like that's. Like at first, I was like, "That'd be a good movie title, an affair with running." I'm like, "No, it would be. No one would go watch it. It'd be like ten people. It'd be like, it'd be like one of those movies that you'd only be able to watch on an airplane. Like, what happened in this movie? Um, wow, yeah, that's that. That's a lot. And when you're when you're getting that kind of feedback from people who hold important parts or are are, are, in, are in important roles in your life, your dad. Your husband, right? There's not many people in your life that can be they're closer to you than those people. And you're getting that kind of feedback. Were there parts, were there times where you stopped running, or were there times where that influenced how much you were running? Not not, I mean, like in terms of how much you wanted to run. Like, did you did you start to maybe conform to some of that thinking um at certain points and not like feel like you needed to disengage but were actively kind of choosing to disengage because maybe you were vacillating on how you felt about it yeah i mean i would say i would say that there were there were many times where i would want to do something and i'm like oh but is it is it worth like all of the feedback i'm going to get and two when you don't have someone supporting you you really start questioning yourself i'm like can i even do this like is it even doable and then i'm like well you know, I only get one chance to raise my kids. If all of these people are telling me that I'm a bad mom by running, well, then maybe I shouldn't run so much or I'm a bad wife because I run, you know? And so you do, you do start questioning, you know, whether you should be doing it. But at the end of the day, like you only get one life and doing what I do, like it can be taken away in a second. Like tomorrow, any one of us can wake up and never be able to run another step. And I'm like, I, when you have that in your face every day, I'm like, you know what? 
if this is what I want to do and I'm not, I'm literally not hurting anyone doing it. Why shouldn't I do it? (laughs) Right. Right. If anything, you're helping them because you're like, Hey, I'm going to be around, you know, like from a longevity perspective. Yes. And I'm a happier person. I'm a happier person when I'm active. Yeah. No question about it. Were there, can you identify times in your life or maybe even one time in your life where you had basically said like basically, you know, to yourself, maybe you said out loud to other people where you, where you just kind of put your foot down of like, we're not having this conversation anymore. Like, no, this is part of my life. And, and this is just the way it goes as opposed to like this kind of never ending back and forth and, and things like that. Because I can imagine, you know, so many of us get in our own heads with running, especially if you have that bad race. You have three workouts in a row that don't go great. Like it's, it can be easy to lose confidence sometimes, especially for not being supported. To be honest, I think I didn't really have that moment until, until I was divorced because I was just, I didn't want to get to the point where I felt like, like I was choosing running over my marriage. That didn't really make sense. And so there were a lot of times where I kind of put it to the side or, you know, didn't, didn't necessarily do the things that I wanted to do because I felt like it was for the greater good. But the year that I got divorced, it's been four years. I think I ran like eight marathons in a 50 K. I did nothing but run that year. (laughs) Hey folks, let's talk about vacation races. Vacation races is a running and travel company that helps people explore and enjoy the most scenic places on earth. It's just a remarkable company. And a big thing that they are promoting are their global adventures. So they just announced their full calendar for 2024. Currently, they offer 11 different global destinations from Alaska, Costa Rica, Croatia, Ecuador, Iceland, Ireland, Japan, New Zealand, Patagonia, Portugal, and a select and a secret destination. So I guess we'll find out about that later. These are unbelievable week-long adventures that do it's just amazing things. So in, not only are you going to be doing the running and the hiking and all that's associated with vacation races, but the meals and the hotels, they're all accounted for. for the, most, most of the meals and the drinks are all accounted for. The hotels are accounted for. You get a ton of swag. You get the beach hoodie. You get the race shirt, the medal, the Global Ventures trucker hat, um, some VR luggage tags. You got a bunch of stuff as well. All you need to do is sit back, relax, and book your flight. And it's really an incredible, incredible uh, company that if you are interested in doing some adventuring, that you, you can't do better than this place. It really is a remarkable thing. If you're interested in doing one of their global adventures, just go to vacationraces.com and use code RAMBLING200 to save $200 off your global adventures trip. Now, just so, just a heads up, this does not work for any events that are sold out. Also, it's for the global adventures, not their half marathons, ultra marathons, or trail fests. Okay, so that's RAMBLING200 for a $200 off a global adventure. However, if you do want to do the ultra or the half that aren't sold out and you want to save some money on that, you can use code RAMBLING15. Say 15% on any half or ultra marathon that is not currently sold out. So you have two different choices, again, the half or the ultra for RAMBLING15 or the global adventure for $200 off by using code RAMBLING200. All of this is in the show notes. Go check them out today. I love that. All right. So how? So once you got to that year, how did you make it work from a scheduling perspective? Because all of a sudden, right, like there's one less person in the house. And I, get, I don't know the like, situation oh, with you and your husband. Matt, but, like, it was crazy because my kids were really young and I like I had them. I had them 100 percent of the time. Like it was a one woman show. Um, and so I lived on this dead end street. And so I would wake up in the morning and it, the street was a quarter mile. And I would run back and forth while they were sleeping. I would do 10 mile runs that way. Can you imagine just back and 40 forth? 40 laps? <laughs> My neighbors probably looked out their window and were like, what a psycho. It's 4 a.m. But my kids were sleeping. I had my eye on my house the whole time. And it was, that's when I could do it, you know? Um, it was, that, that was a crazy year. But yeah, like... You know, and I would do 20 mile runs on the treadmill in my basement. Like you just figure it out. (laughs) I mean, I'll tell you one thing. Obviously, that's not like 
I mean, talk about monotonous. But at the same time, I, saw, I guess you could probably argue that that was a great trainer for you just from a mental perspective. Like if you can mentally deal with those kind of runs, it's a high bar to clear. But I think if you can clear that bar, it must set you up from a mental toughness standpoint that like, I'm not sure I could handle that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, for sure. I think in the in the end, when you are faced with a circumstance, you have to decide, like, am I going to let my circumstance squash my goals or am I going to find a way around these ridiculous circumstances? And that's just what I had to do. And at the time, like, believe it or not, I didn't even think it was crazy. Like, I thought it was super normal, <laughs> like, you know, like. And, you know, just this is kind of a sidetrack, but in as Muslims, we observe a, an entire month of fasting every year. It's Ramadan. And in that month, um, if I had a marathon at the end of the month, I would do like my 20 mile training runs on the treadmill starting at 10 o'clock at night. And like now I think back and I'm like, that was psycho. But in the moment, like you're like, OK, I'm adapting. This is fine. <laughs> Let's ask, let's talk about that. All right. Cause that was, this is what I wanted to get to. So we might as well just get to it now. When you're running during Ramadan, do you prefer to do the run just after sunset where it's like, or is it better from a fueling perspective, if you can, to kind of go do it maybe earlier in the morning where like, are right, you maybe have some food in you and you're able to prepare a certain way. But then obviously like on that end, like then you're kind of like, all right, I'm just not going to care as much about the recovery because I, I won't be able to eat for very long after this or what have you. So, so for my long runs, I have this like sweet spot where like, I'll start them like an hour before sunset. So you're starting your long run on like a 17 hour fast. But then as soon as like the first hour goes by, then I start feeling during the rest of my long run. That's the only way I can do my long runs in Ramadan. If like, and then that way, by the time you're done, it's not like, two o'clock in the morning, you know, like you still finish before midnight. <laughs> gotcha. So you must've gotten really good at fueling then. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know that I would say I'm really good at fueling, but I've practiced many different fueling techniques. <laughs> I guess that's what I mean. Like you, you had to be at least decent in order to complete these runs. I know some people struggle with it or either cause they don't put as much time into figuring out what works for them. Some people have just a GI system, which makes it tricky. But it sounds like like you basically, if that's your sweet spot, then you must have figured out a pretty good routine for yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know what gels will work for me. And like, I, I mean, I like to eat. So like, I'll have like a cliff bar or whatever. Like, yeah, so I do know what sits well with me. And but I only do that for long runs. And then outside of that, if I'm doing like a super easy run and pace doesn't matter, like I usually try to do it midday so that I'm not super hungry or thirsty, but I know that I don't have 12 hours until I can have water. And then if I have like a workout run, like a really hard run, I'll do that like at sunrise, like right after I've had like water and breakfast and whatever. Yeah, those late night runs, and obviously this this can happen for anybody, um, and even for you, it doesn't have to be Ramadan to, to go for a late night run, especially if you have uh, unique work hours or a unique level at home situation where like, the, I don't know, for me, the tricky part with some of these nighttime runs isn't it even the run itself, is that I find like the soreness from those runs gets exacerbated because like, you, you come home and then you end up going to sleep and then like, I'll wake up the next day and be like, I'm so tight. And it's like, so it's hard to like reset to like, all right, now I'm going to do a morning run because I want to get back on my morning schedule because I did that longer nighttime run. I'm waking up. I'm like, oh, good grief. Like, I'm not feeling great right now. Like, maybe I'll just run again tonight. And all of a sudden I start getting into this like nighttime running pattern. And I'm sure there's ways out of it. But how have you dealt with that sort of thing if you do, if you've experienced anything similar? Um, so I tend, I, I've become pretty good about if I'm, if I'm really feeling sore, then I, I have like a whole list of things I do. Like I do ice baths, I do Epsom baths, I'll go get a massage, I'll go to yoga. So I try to like react there at this point, I feel like prevention is impossible. Like once you like, ha once you've made the decision that you're going to do something that's going to make you sore, like if you're really tight afterwards or if you're in a lot of pain or in my case, Ole was battling some sort of running related injury, <laughs> then you, you have to figure out like what, how you're going to recover and move on to the next run. Um, I will say that through the years I've, I've 
I think the one thing I have learned from running is how to be gritty. And um, now this is where I say do as I say, not as I do, because I, I commonly run when I'm in pain or have an injury and I just grit my teeth and go. <laughs> I think I need to start a new a new podcast theme called Do As I Say, Not As I Do and, and put it to all running stuff that, that, that runners can fall, uh, fall victim to in their own running. Because I feel like we all have those things where we're like, I know better, but let me tell you about yeah. this thing I do on occasion. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. So when you had that that year post divorce, when you're like, I'm doing all I'm doing all the things now, like the limit, like the, the guardrails are off. I'm just going to go after this nonstop. Tell me about like the the choices that you decided to make. Right. All of a sudden you had all of these choices and and it was probably an abundance of choices to make. So just in terms of like the kinds of races you wanted to run, why these why endurance running, going after marathons and ultras for you was a better fit than saying like, Hey, I'm going to do all a lot of five K 10 Ks and maybe some half marathons. Like why, what about the longer races better suited you and how did you go about choosing them? So, I mean, my very first marathon was in 2014 and I literally did it just to see if I could run a marathon. Like, I don't even know if I trained correctly. I think I need to take a single sip of water for like 10 miles. Like I had no idea what I was doing. And when I finished, I literally thought I was going to die and everybody around me looked amazing. And I was like, okay, there's a better way to do this. I didn't do it right. (laughs) And I think that's when I started like wanting to run marathons better And then I noticed that as I trained like a normal person trains for marathons, I started getting faster. And then I got it in my head that I'd qualify for Boston. And man, like once I get something in my head, it's so hard to it's it's just hard to stop trying for it. So I think I tried nine times before I qualified for Boston. (laughs) Over over how long a period of time? Like two years. (laughs) Only two years, nine times. Oh, my God. And so the first, the time that that's, then I got addicted to like getting faster. So my first BQ was in 2017 and in a downhill marathon, it was, I don't know if you've heard of the Revel races, but it was Cottonwood Canyon in Utah. And, um, it's literally, they bust you up a mountain and then you run 26 miles down the mountain. (laughs) It was psycho. Like I strained both of my calves, like I couldn't walk for like three weeks <laughs> afterwards. It was, it was really tough, but I did get my BQ. <laughs> so um, that's what I kind of, I, I feel like I got addicted to the athletic part of running where like, if the harder you work to fine tune something, like the better you can get and you're really only competing against yourself, but that part of it became really fun for me. So I set it as a goal to, to qualify for Boston once a year. And then I just pick one marathon every year and that's the one I do to BQ. And then I, I just love to travel. And so I pick really fun destination marathons and do those. And then just this year is when I got into the ultras. It's like, something totally new (laughs) and i went from zero to a hundred quite literally (laughs) do you think you would have gotten into ultras faster if there wasn't covid or did that covid break kind of set the stage for getting into ultras because all of a sudden there weren't any races people were just kind of trying to find interesting things to do on their own or with like these virtual communities no, like, it, I feel like, so I did, I did 150k in 2018. And it was the it was in like the Valley of Fire State Park, Nevada, it was so hot. And it was a smaller race, there were like, two aid stations. <laughs> like, I was like, never again, like, it was like every 5k, there'd be a pink ribbon tied on like a cactus or something. And that's how you knew you were going the right way. It was, oh and there was no cell service. And you're in the middle of the desert. And like, there were stretches of like, you're running on sand. It was all so of a sudden miserable. Toledo Ohio doesn't seem too bad. <laughs> When I finished it, I was like, never again. I'm never doing another ultra. Like the road races and marathons, those are my sweet spot. And so it took four years before I I reconsidered reconsidered that. And so during COVID, if anything, I I think actually my COVID running story is kind of funny. Do you remember when COVID started in March, how like CNN would be like, there are three cases of COVID in Michigan. There are six in Boston. So I was one of the very first people who had COVID in March when COVID started. (laughs) 
And I remember that that was back when like it was so hard to even like get tested to know if you had it. Like I only was able to get tested because I I'm in medicine and Detroit was like one of the epicenters of COVID. So it was easier for us. So otherwise I would never have like known for sure. But I remember when I started feeling sick, I was like complaining to my friends about it and they were like, you, you don't have COVID. You like ate too many donuts or something. This is not COVID. Like <laughs> I did I eat a lot of donuts, run. but I also had COVID. <laughs> Like, that's how I knew I had it. Like, I couldn't run. I couldn't even run half a mile without stopping to catch my breath. And I was like, what is wrong with me? And it took it took so long before I, like, could run normally with, like, normal stamina and everything. It was probably, like, two months. Like, at some point, I remember thinking, like, am I ever going to run again, like, normally? And so, um, like, once I finally got my juju back, like, it, so I would say those first six months in COVID, like I didn't really run much. It was just survival mode because my kids were home for virtual school and I was working in the hospital. I have a hospital based job. And so I had nobody home with them. It was psycho. <laughs> it was, you know, like they were teaching themselves. Like I'd get an email and it was like, your seven year old didn't log into math today. And I'm like, oh, well. <laughs> Oh gosh. Um, and so so I didn't really start seriously running until like um it was like months into the pandemic, like six months or more. And I think the first marathon I did was actually a trail marathon. It was um it was in one of in one of the trails in, in Michigan and it was twenty-seven miles and I was like, We did an ultra technically, it's more than a marathon. <laughs> number two. Yeah, ultra number two on <laughs> And, um, and then like most races were canceled anyways. So I felt like, well, I'm not training for anything. And then about a year and a half ago, um, I signed up with Sydney to just like, I was like, I need like someone to like force me to do this again. <laughs> so, so I know that she lives near you. Did she, did she live near you when you signed up with her? She did. She's all, she, we've lived about six miles from each other from the start. And actually that's why, um, that's why she was chosen to be my, that's why I was paired with her because, um, James was, James was saying that he thought it would be useful if like she knew kind of the terrain and the climate that I was training in and could maybe give me like tips and stuff. And it was, she was so sweet. Like, I think, I'm not sure how long she'd been coaching even at that point. Um, but she was like, so we, we met once, like we met at a park and that was like back when, like, I feel like a year and a half ago is when we first started hanging out with people socially <laughs> and Sydney herself has always been super careful. Cause like, you know, you know, she's like an Olympic grade athlete. She didn't want to get COVID, you know, and I work in a hospital, so I'm kind of high risk, <laughs> but, but we met, we met a couple of times and that's when I started working on speed again. And it was like, I was kind of emotionally not in a great place at that time. And so I just felt like I thought running would kind of help get me out of my like mental funk. And um, so, so it, it was great. Like I started with, I hadn't done speed work in like more than a year. <laughs> and so, you know, we started from scratch and I kind of went in with big goals and I was like, okay, like I want a PR and I want a BQ and the race I have is in like three and a half months let's do this. <laughs> so, and she put together a really great plan for me. And it was just, um, I just like, I think I wasn't really thinking about my nutrition and I wasn't doing any strength work at that point. And I was just running. And I think I was taking out like all of my frustration, and all of my anger during my runs and not thinking about anything else. And all of a sudden I just like lost a ton of weight, unfortunately, some of which was like muscle mass, like two weeks before the marathon, I just had this excruciating hip pain. And the whole time Sydney was like, it's got to be a labral tear. And I'm like, nah. <laughs> I'm a doctor, I, Sydney. I know I'm what's doctor, going on. Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I iced, I took Motrin and I showed up to the marathon and I was so sure that the pain was going to keep me from running my goal that I didn't even take racing shoes with me. I took only my train, my long run shoes. And, um, and well, like, then why, I don't then know. Why run? <laughs> If you're if you're gonna be like this isn't gonna go well, I, and my coach thinks it's a tear in my hip, why, why split the difference? Because I'm super stubborn, <laughs> and it was like, it was just like all it was the first 
post-COVID big marathon in a really long time. It was the Carmel Marathon, and there were like several thousand people. And that was one of the first really big races during the pandemic. And I was like, I just like, I miss races. I'm going to go and we'll just see what happens. And um, like, I think I like I really did the first 5K super conservatively. And then like, I was already in pain. And I'm like, well, if it's going to hurt go big or go home. And that was like one of those like grit your teeth and go situations where like every step hurt. I just focused on the mile I was in and I got my PR and BQ and it just like was crazy because I was like, I was like, this is a miracle. I didn't have racers. Like I was running with an injury and then afterwards I went and got an MRI and sure enough, it was a labral tear. So. Well, if it wasn't before the race, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the race probably didn't help in that in that respect. <laughs> no, <laughs> but I feel like those are the races that like really help you grow because like you learn how to tap into something different. Like because you just have to shut it off. Like you have to shut off the part of your mind that says it hurts. Stop moving, or you know what I mean. And and you just learn to just tap into other resources and I was laughing with Sydney and I was like who knew that like emotion could be such an amazing fuel because that's really what I just tapped into and and just like everything that was on my mind I kind of like laid it out on the pavement and and got through it so it was it was a cool experience in that regard until this day that remains my PR so wow I hear these stories of your training, these races, and knowing your background um, from a schooling perspective, and, and it becomes clear that you have done so many things well in terms of like focusing and following through on tasks and endeavors where many people may have you know, given less than their best or not completed these things, maybe you can try in the first place, but just in terms of like completing and going after goals and things that are important to you and not letting um, just the, the hardness of the endeavor take over and stop you from committing, from going after these goals. What have you learned in your life that has enabled that or kind of sped that along that you feel like you can pass on to others and maybe even your kids as they approach certain goals um, that they know or that you know will take not only a lot of drive, but continued determination over a long period of time? Well, I think that the number one thing I want my kids to take from this is that like the, the biggest person who will stand in your way is yourself. Like, I think that you have to just have a positive attitude and show up thinking you can do it and tell yourself you can and convince yourself you can. And once you've crossed that hurdle, like so many things that you didn't think are possible are possible. Um, you know, and, and I think too, it's just so important to stay true to yourself. Like what matters to you? Like if, if I enjoy the discipline behind training for a marathon, then I'm going to keep doing that. And if it means that I sleep a little less or I socialize with my friends a little less, like to me, it's worth it. And, and it's just important to live the lifestyle that you want. Cause you only, you only get one, like, this is the last time that I'm going to be 39. Like I want to enjoy being 39 and I want to live 39, how I want to live 39, you know, and it, you, people will give you their opinion about, about your life, but it's your life. Who cares what other people think, you know, who cares in the end, what, you know, like, sure, somebody might be offended that you're not living the way that, that they think you should live. But like, who's, who's responsible? Only you, you're responsible for yourself. And I, I want my kids to see that to see that, like, the only way that you can serve other people is if you've taken care of yourself and, and served yourself first. You mentioned you, you mentioned your dad, you know, coming from Egypt, coming, you know, coming from, um, I guess, a point of view that may have been normal in his time with the, with people that he grew up with and then he learned from and and him you know expressing his point of view to you that you you didn't agree with right in terms of like how you want to live parts of your life and when you go through that process now where now you're in the position to help influence other people and you know be either a light for them or a voice for them whether it's your kids or other people potentially in the running community what are you trying to do or what are you aware of in terms of like being someone who, as someone who runs with a hijab, and as we talked about offline, like you, know, you, it's hard to, for most of the time, you can't just look at somebody and know their religion. Obviously, if you're running in a hijab, 
as you put it in the woman's running article, like you're a unicorn in a sea of horses at the starting line. Like it's, it's people are aware of it. So what's it like for you from a representation standpoint, from modeling perspective for folks who maybe um, are coming from a situation like you came from in terms of it wasn't as stressed or even people being dissuaded from something that they actually want to do and um, have every right to do? Well, I hope that I hope that if anybody ever questioned whether <clears throat> they could or should not do something that is good for them because of how they look or are dressed, that they would, you know, second, you know, second guess that. And that's that's what I want my kids to know, that I don't feel like my hijab or the way that I dress have hold me back. You know, would I be like two minutes faster if I didn't have all these layers of clothes? Sure. But, you know, in my opinion, it's kind of it makes the challenge even that much harder. Um, and, I'll, you know, I, I was in Morocco a couple months ago for vacation and I wanted I was marathon training. So I wanted to run outside and I have never been stared at more or looked at like I was the biggest freak show ever than when I was running in a Muslim country in hijab, just to like put it in perspective, like, like, you know, and it's so funny, like, what a conundrum, you know, like, that's where I should feel the most comfortable to do whatever I do, while dressed and practicing my faith. But it just kind of puts things in perspective. And a I felt super blessed to have grown up where I did grow up, so that I could have the ability to confidently do what I want to do wherever I want to do it, you know? Um, and I hope that when I was out there, all the days that I was there, that other women saw me and were like, oh, that's cool. Like, you know, like you never know, like maybe one person's life might have changed. You just never know. And you definitely exude this high level of confidence and spirit. And it really is breathtaking to behold. And is it something that yes, you have morphed into as you've gotten accomplishment after accomplishment and just a list of things that you've done is remarkable? Or was that kind of needed as a, as a prerequisite to start doing all of these things that you were able to do? I think it's a little of both. Um, I think that you you kind of have to fake it till you make it to a degree. <laughs> so, you know, when I when I first started all of this, like, you know, you have to show up and like give an air of confidence, even if inside you're like, am I going to do this? And like that's happened so many times just in the past um, year and some of these other adventures that I've gone on. Um, you show up and you're like, I don't know if I'm going to do this. I give myself a 50-50 chance but I'm going to try. <laughs> like, that's it. Um, so, so I don't know. I, I, I am happy that I exude that, but I will tell you that like, I'm a normal person who questions myself all the time. Even if I have a hard workout on my calendar, like I'll look at it and be like, Sydney's crazy, <laughs> but like, I'll try it. You know, I'll try anything once. <laughs> this is great. All right. So what's next up on the calendar? Um, so I, I mean, I have an ultra in October that I'm going to start training for, but I, um, I, I have to tell you, I did this hundred mile race in February and as somebody who previously, like anybody who I ever saw on like social media or like all these trail runner accounts that I follow and I see like that they run hundred milers, like they're nothing. I was like, those people are crazy. Like I will never run a hundred miles. Like I already said after my 50 K I'm never doing another one. And then it was just last September. I was like at my son's like soccer game and I was sitting with the, just like going through my phone and like I just saw these people like trail runners I follow posting runs and I was like you know it might be worth reconsidering and within like 15 minutes I had registered for the Hoka Rocky Raccoon 100 mile race and I screenshotted my registration and texted it to Sydney and I was like guess what I just did and she's like you're <laughs> insane <laughs> and um I was like all right we have like, it was in February. So I think I had like four and a half months <laughs> to train for it. And at the time I was actually training for um, my uh, Indianapolis marathon. It was like in six weeks and I, my goal was to be Q. And so I was doing speed work and not necessarily a ton of volume. And she was like, all right, well, if that's your goal, then there's not really going to be like a taper for this marathon. Like, 
you're just going to run a marathon with no taper. I'm like, all right, cool. And so, <laughs> so by some miracle, I still got my DQ at that race. That was my goal. I, I had like a 10 minute buffer. So I was happy with it and happy that I could do it, even though I was like trading for an ultra. And till, till then I had run one thirty one mile run one time. And then outside of that, my longest run had been the marathon distance. <laughs> But somehow I thought in three months I'd be able to run a hundred miles. <laughs> um, and so I, I had this 50 mile run. Play, well, I had an ultra planned with two of my friends in November in Moab. It's one of the Mad Moose running events. And it's a really, it's a really beautiful course. And so they had a 50 mile option. And I was like, well, I might as well do the 50 miler because that'll kind of help me train for the hundred. And it was only two weeks after the marathon, which I hadn't tapered for. So I was like, I should be ready for it, theoretically. <laughs> and Sydney was like, you do know that 50 miles is two marathons back to back. It's like, I know. <laughs> um, and so I went with two of my friends who were doing the 30K. And so the day before, we were like hiking. Arches National Park is so pretty and Moab is beautiful. It's like, when else am I going to be here? So I did all the hiking with them and we were like out kind of late getting dinner. And I was like, okay, I do have 50 miles in the morning. So <laughs> I guess I, I should mentally prepare for it. But I honestly like showed up thinking about it no differently than I would think for a marathon. And I, <laughs> and like everybody was super hyped at the start. And I looked around and I was like, you know, like, I don't feel like I'm any different than any of these people. It should be fine. <laughs> um, but I, I had this plan to break it into 10 mile, like, intervals. And I was like, every 10 miles, I'm going to reset. You can do anything for 10 miles. And then I got to mile 30. And I was like, okay, 20 more miles. That's so miserable right now. <laughs> I was like, all right, I have to, there's only one way to, once you're at 30 miles, you can only finish if you get to the finish. There's no, there's no way to cut out of a course and there's like no cell service. Like you'll only be saved if a runner finds you collapsed and finds service and calls 911. So I was like, all right, well you got to do this. And I think it was like at mile 48, I recorded a video to remind myself of how I felt. And it was like, if you can't run, walk. And if you can't walk, crawl. And if you can't crawl, and when I looked around myself, it was like all I could see were mountains. I was like, figure out how you're going to get to the mother of the finish line. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what are you going to do, you know? Um, but it was super, it was so beautiful. And it was, it was really um, a confidence boost because I finished it upright. I went out for burgers with my friends afterwards and I wasn't last. (laughs) I I think it took me like 11 hours or something. Um, And so I was like super pumped for the hundred miler after that. And, um, and then it was after that, that my training really shifted. And for like two months, I had this plan where I was supposed to be doing like back to back long runs. And so I'd run like 25 miles one day and like 15 the next. And it was crazy. Like I'd never done volumes like that before. And um, a month before the race, I had like, I had this trip planned to Tanzania for my birthday. And I was like, all right, Sydney, I'm taking an eight day hiatus from training. (laughs) She's like four weeks before your race. And I'm like, yep. (laughs) And I was like, you know, like, I'm going to be at altitude, like, my lungs are going to get trained, even though I'm not running, it's going to be great. (laughs) That's that's classic. I'll be like, we're gonna dive into the deep end. Oh, just so you know, the lifeguard is gonna pull me out, like right when I'm supposed to be peeking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I, it was like an unconventional training program in that regard. Where just like four weeks before my race, I, I took a really big break. I came back from Tanzania with COVID, and so that was another week of not running. <laughs> And so I just remembered that the first time I had COVID, it took me so long to get back to running. And so then I started biting my nails a little bit. Um, But I just like, I didn't give myself a choice. Like I'd go out and do my runs, even if I felt kind of crummy. Um, And then, and then for the hundred miler, Sydney was supposed to actually come crew me. That had been the plan. 
And then she was really close to a race and she was like semi injured. And she's like, okay, I have really bad news. I can't come anymore. (laughs) I was like, all right, (laughs) I get it. Um, But I have never done a hundred miler. I don't know anything about hundred milers. Like I need a crew. (laughs) Like I read on the website and it said that for the second half, you're allowed to have pacers. And I was like, well, that'll be great. Like people to like convince me not to quit. And so I put together like three, like friends who like are kind of friends and they barely know me and don't know each other. And they came from like across the country and met me in the middle of nowhere, Texas for the, <laughs> for this weekend. It was pretty encouraging. It's kind of an, you know, it shows the, the amazingness of the running community, if anything. So how did the race go? I, I totally spaced. <laughs> I meant to bring up this race and then I like jumped all the way to like, what's left on your calendar? I, I apologize. <laughs> Um, well, the race was, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And up until that point, I had said that climbing Kilimanjaro was the hardest thing I'd ever done. Cause that was really hard. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, you just like, you have no idea how it's going to go. And they had, it was a rolling start. And, um, and so you just show up and go like, like you just show up and start, and so I was guess kind of like the, was like, was like the fall Boston. Did you do that one? Was it the same way? Yeah, but the fall Boston had like twenty thousand people running it or something. Like this race had three hundred. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was like it was pitch black, dark, twenty degrees, and there's nobody there. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you're like running into the woods. Oh my! <laughs> and so I was like, my friend dropped me off, and I was like, don't leave. I'm not going to start until I see someone else. <laughs> like I'm not starting by myself. I'm too scared. <laughs> and so this really nice, this really nice guy shows up and he was like kind of older and looked super calm. And I was like, all right, uh, I introduced myself and I was like, I've never done a hundred miler before. Have you? And he was like, yes, as a matter of fact, I've done this exact race three times. I was like, amazing. I think I'm going to start with you. Please, please don't leave me. <laughs> And so we started together and like kind of got into a groove and then he was doing more of a walking at the start. And like, I was like, if I start out walking, I'll never finish. So I kind of went, went on ahead of him. And then um, like, it was five loops of a 20 mile course. And so before I knew it, the first loop was done. Um, and my friends met me kind of at the 20 mile mark and like, they had all the things they like pounded out my calves with the Theragun and it actually ended up going, it was the first 20 miles were fine. And then the next 20 miles, I started getting a little bit tired and I knew that my mom was super worried about me. So I called her, reassured her that I was fine and was like, I'm at mile 40. I feel great. Only 60 to go. (laughs) And I hung up with her. And then um, I looked up at my friends and I was like, I feel like I'm dying. <laughs> They're like, well, in 10 miles, you're going to have someone with you for the whole second half. So it just kind of powered through to 50. Um, and then after that, you know, I had my pacers with me. So it was the, the 50 to 70 were a pretty solid walk run. But then at 70 miles, like my body was like, no matter what you want to do, we're not running anymore. So you figure it out. <laughs> so so I, my friend who met me at mile 70, by this time it's midnight and it's freezing. It's like less than 20 degrees and she's ready to run. That's how she's going to get warm. And I was like, guess what? We're walking. <laughs> And she was such a good sport about it. She'd make me feel bad. Like we lit- we we walked twenty miles. It took forever. <laughs> like, like I couldn't use my fingers. Like I reverted to like an infant state. Like she, I'd be like, I'm hungry, and she'd like put food in my mouth. <laughs> Like the water in my hydration pack had frozen. So, you know, if we passed an aid station, we'd just try to drink all the fluids. Um, And then I think for the last 10 miles, I might have been crying for almost all of it. (laughs) It's like three hours of crying. Yes, literally. (laughs) And my Garmin died after 19 hours, I think 75 miles. So then the last 25 miles, you have no idea your pace or your time or anything. And I kept looking at my friends. I was like, what time is it? Like, how, how many miles do I have left? And they're like, 
you just have to keep going till you're done. Like you can't even think about it that way. <laughs> and at mile 80, they had met me with like a warm car and I got in it and I was like, I'm not ever getting out. And they were like, yeah, you have, you have to get out. I was like, never, I'm never getting out. You might as well drive me home. <laughs> it was, drive me it home was... from Texas. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> Um, and so it was like, honestly, like the last mile, um, I ran that on my own. My friend kind of ducked off the course and she was like, you want to finish this by yourself. And so I just like reflected on like what a miracle it was that someone like me who 10 years ago couldn't even run one mile ran a hundred miles. Like it was like in my mind, like such a testament to the fact that like, if you believe you can do something, you can do it. Um, and there's this, there's this photographer who travels around taking photos at ultra marathons named Howie Stern. And I had previously never heard of him, but he was at this race and he got my picture at like that exact moment where like I was crossing the finish line and like all of the feels were kind of there together. And, um, it was like just the perfect picture and he ended up publishing it in the trail runner magazine in a photo essay recently. <laughs> my, so my dad who thought it was insane that I ran a hundred miles, like was so excited to walk into Barnes and Noble and purchase that magazine. It was really cool. Oh, <laughs> what, what a nice, what a nice cycle we had there. That was great. <laughs> oh, that's exciting. Oh, th th I can't. Your drive is just remarkable. It is just so remarkable. I don't even know what to say. It's hard for me to even reflect on it. Uh, I'll have to spend some time <laughs> slotting through my run today and be like, well, remember what Hibba did. Like, you you know, you can do, you're, you're just fine. Um, that is wild. Well, the crazy thing is that once you've done a hundred miler, like no distance ever sounds intimidating again, you know? And like my goal is to finish in under 30 hours because I wanted to get like my one lottery entry for Western States. That will be the only way I'll ever run a hundred again is if I somehow get into Western States. So, um, so I, you know, I finished in 28 hours and change <laughs> by some miracle. And I remember looking at the results and I think 300 people started and a hundred dropped. And I was like, all right, well already, like I didn't quit. <laughs> like, I was, like that's, that's the biggest thing when it's like five loops of a 20 mile course, you have every chance to quit. Like it's always there. You can always walk right over to your car. So um yeah that was i think the, that was the hardest thing i've ever done kilimanjaro's number two. <laughs> oh my god talking to you is so funny it's like talking to a fictional person like all these things that you've done i can't even imagine doing any of them this is a crazy town um so when people tell you when people talk to you about challenges they're having and difficulties that they seem like they can't do, or I wish I could do this, but I have these difficulties, so now I can't do it. And they're kind of, you can you can feel and see and hear them talking themselves out of something that they proclaim that they care about. Do you hold your tongue? Do you tell them? Do you, hey, this is what I did? Like, how do you approach those situations? Because I feel like you are this model that we can try to emulate, but at the same time, like, you must be like, you know, what are all these excuses? Like, let me give you the, the Hibba story. Um, I mean, <laughs> I don't, well, I don't, I think that, I think that I remember being that person at one point in my life. And it's, it, you know, because of that, I think that I can put myself in their shoes and it, you just have to remember that, like, it takes a minute to snap out of it. And not everybody, like, I feel like I'm, I'm just super fortunate that, I like I don't know what it is it's honestly I feel like luck of the draw that like it happened that I was able to just kind of be self-motivated and not have somebody necessarily to snap me out of it but I always say that running is my therapy and I feel like maybe that's for me what it is because it like has gotten me through a lot and has been my outlet through a lot and so I you know I try I try to like use that you know if somebody if somebody is struggling, I'm like, well, use it as your outlet. And my kids don't like to run. They have other hobbies. And so I, I encourage them to use those other hobbies as their outlet for when they're, you know, frustrated. Um, and it's, it's funny because I think because 
I put it in their heads that they can do anything. I talk to my son now and I'm like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he's 11. He's like an NBA player. I'm going to be an NBA player. <laughs> I'm like, of course you are. <laughs> 11 year old Matt Chittam used to say the same thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. But yeah, I think that we are our biggest hurdles sometimes. Well, you've proven that. That is for sure. Hiba, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been an absolute treat. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's been so fun. Hiba, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was an absolute blast. I told you in the intro, this lady is just a wellspring of positivity and energy, and I may have undersold it because she is just so much more than that. So Hiba, thank you so much for coming on the show, and thank you for listening. If you could do anything for me, it's to share the show with your running friends. I would really appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening, and happy running.